from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Badi Shams on May 1st, 2017. As a young man, Badi left his home in Iran and pursued his higher education in India as a way to provide service to the Baha'i faith there. He found himself a refugee when the Iranian revolutionary government refused to renew his passport because he was a Baha'i. He thus had to leave India and take refuge in Canada. Just before leaving India, he started an elementary school there called the Martha Root School, named after a famous Baha'i who traveled all over the world promoting the Baha'i teachings in the early part of the 20th century. Badi's field of interest is economics, and he has published a compilation called Economics of the Future, and also recently the book Economics of the Future Begins Today. We talk about these books in the interview. He's retired now from the education system and lives with his wife on Vancouver Island where he tends his many varieties of fruit trees. I started the interview by asking Badi where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Tehran, though my parents were from Shiraz. And I basically grew up there till I left Tehran for India for pioneering. Actually, I grew up in a very beautiful orchard. To this day, I'm trying to recreate in my backyard. <laughs> I've tried to put all those trees. So that's where I grew up, in Tehran. Is Shams a Indian last name? No, he's Iranian. Shams actually is Arabic. Is you know, wow. if you have heard the Shams Tabriz, who was the basically the master of Rumi. And Rumi wrote his Masnavi for basically Shams Tabriz. Shams means sun, you know, sun in the sky, mm-hmm. and Badi means wonderful. So I'm supposed to mean a wonderful sun. I guess my mom had quite a high hope for me. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> what was religious life like growing up? My mother even was a Muslim when I was born, and my father became a Baha'i when he was 12 years old. And he almost was killed by his father. And he had to run away from his village in Shiraz and come to Tehran without any education. And he basically taught himself everything. And so my uncles, my grandmother, my, you know, all cousins, everybody was Muslim. And we were surrounded by Muslims. Sometimes created lots of hardship because I remember when I was a kid, my mother's uncle came to uh, take my mother away, saying that she's married an infidel, which was kind of a very uh, traumatic experience to witness mother trying to be dragged away from your home. So it was not fun in that way. Even in the schooling, we had to experience the prejudice, you know, fanatism. So your father was a Baha'i and your mother was Muslim? Yes, and then uh, she became a Baha'i later on. And maybe for those not familiar with Baha'i history, maybe you could explain briefly why there's such animosity toward Baha'is when you were growing up. 
it's nothing new in the history of religion. You know, um, we have seen it in Christianity. You know, we have seen it in Buddhism. You know, whenever a new ideology or idea or uh, religious movement starts, there's always opposition. And so Baha'i faith in that sense is no different because the Muslim believe that Muhammad was the last prophet and Baha'is believed in progressive revelation and believing that we need a spiritual guidance. So time to time, God sent us guidance. So there is no difference between all of them. In Iran, it was no different than they say the early Christians or the early Buddhists, followers of Buddha in, in India. They had a hard time for a long time, though Buddhism was actually born in India, but it never really spread in India. It had to spread other places. So that's the reason fanaticism was, to me, is resisting the change, resisting the new ideas, sticking with the old system. And how old were you when you left Iran? I was actually 19. I finished my high school, and we were encouraged there was a feeling that something may happen because Iran was progressing materially. Everybody was getting rich. It was amazing. It was like everybody had money because of the OPEC and oil money coming to the country. And I remember calling Tehran the Paris of Asia. Yeah, that was the time in Iran growing up. But unfortunately, then things changed later. I finished my one um, technical school, and then I was doing my mathematics, I think, diploma. And then there was a call. We need people to leave country and go other places and try to serve mankind. I was very eager. I think I was spiritually on fire. I left. I just left everything, and I wanted to go to Africa and uh, waited for six months. Nothing happened, and I had relatives in India, and... He sent me admission to go because you couldn't go to India working there. So you had to be either student or tourist, which was great for me. I <laughs> I had to have a tourist visa, so now I can study too. So that's what I left Iran. I think I was 19. And of course, I didn't know any uh, word of English because when I was in Iran, I was doing the diploma in electronic, I think, and the language was German. So when I went to India with no English, now I had to learn the alphabet from the beginning. And I was in the second year of college dealing with Shakespeare and <laughs> economic books, which was not fun. But my handy dandy dictionary really saved me and, and lots of hard work, of course. What part of India did you move to? My admission was for engineering college in a place called Patiala in Punjab. Then I had a change of heart and I said, no, I can't spend so much time in engineering. I need to make a change. And I uh, decided that I'm going to do my degrees in economics and I uh, do my uh, thesis on Baha'i economics. So I changed and then I left Patiala, the engineering college, and I went up north towards Himalayas and where the Dalai Lama is. Uh, we were six hours, I think, away from where he lives. They had a university in the middle of the mountains, very beautiful scenery there. So I did my um, BA and my master's in economics and English literature. And then uh, for my PhD, I had to go to another province, which called Rajasthan, which is the desert state in India. And I was there till um, the Baha'i temple in India 
was finished in 1987. So by 88, government of India gave me six months to leave the country. <laughs> so I left. Buddy, why did you change your major from engineering to economics? The pressure in, in Iran, everybody wants to be a doctor or an engineer. So I guess maybe I was just following that mentality that I have to be engineer to be somebody. Part of it also, I think I really wanted to do engineering in the field of agriculture. I always liked nature. I just was in love with nature since my beginning of my childhood. So I wanted to be close to nature. So that was the goal. And once I went to India, of course, the reality sets in and you realize that if you want to do your engineering, you really have to concentrate on your studies. And my intention was serving as much as I could as a human being, you know, and as a Baha'i and be of some help to the society and be active, a member of the Baha'i community. And those two, they couldn't really go together. I said, maybe I should do something that it serves me. And maybe I can also serve my fate by being the first person to study the Baha'i economics, the concept of it. So that was quite attractive at that time. And that was what I decided. And I was very excited about it. I still am excited about it. <laughs> when I finished my master's and I wanted to do my PhD, so I wrote to House of Justice, the universal governing body of the Baha'is, and I said, okay, I want to do this, and can you provide me with the writings? They wrote back and then said, that's great, you want to do, but there is no writing, and research department has none. Maybe it's not a bad idea for you to collect them. So those days, there was no computer or, you know, all those facilities. I'm talking about 70s and early 80s. So that took me about two, three years to just go through every book I could get and find any reference about economics, give it a title, and... When it was finished, I uh, sent a copy to the House of Justice and they said they, maybe that should be published. And that led to my first book. It was published in um, 1989, though I'd left India at that time. It was the compilation on Baha'i writings on economics, uh, which was uh, basically like a reference book for people who want to study. They have it in all in one place. And then also they told me, <laughs> in case you don't know, there is no Baha'i economic system. So you can uh, make your thesis as study of the Baha'i writings on economics. Meanwhile, then the um, government of India, they gave me six months to leave. So I never got a chance to finish my PhD as a degree, of course. My research I continued doing, and that, of course, led to another book, which was published just recently in November, I think. How long did you live in India? Twelve, almost 13 years. And why was it at this point that the government asked you to leave India? What happens when the revolution took place in Iran, I left Iran before uh, the Shah was overthrown. And once he was gone, the new government uh, didn't extend our passport. So we were all stranded in India, not a very nice place to be stranded in terms of finances. We were basically refugees, and most of the people, they left for America and Canada, including my younger brother who came later to India. But I had started the elementary school in Rajasthan, I called it Martarut School, in the name of one of the famous Baha'is. So I was very involved, and I was very excited to have it, and... So when my visa came for Canada, I didn't go. 
they realized that and they told me, what is your problem? You have a visa. Your brother has sponsored you in Canada and you're still here. So <laughs> you, we want you to live and we give you six months. So you're not going to delay that. So that's how it happened. I honestly didn't want to live. But I um, also told everybody, I'm going to Canada to get a passport and some money. I'll be back. <laughs> you know, so and that was my intention. I did go back twice to India, but that was my intention. It was my home because I couldn't go to Iran. I haven't been since the revolution. I haven't seen my younger brother since he was four years old. So let's talk about your book that you've recently published. Economics of the Future Begin Today. Why did you name the book that? When the message of House of Justice recently came in March 1st, 2017, it was a very panic time for me because I'd written my book about a year and a half ago, and I had always this idea since I've been dealing with economics that we should increase our knowledge about writing because economics is such an important factor in our life. Money changes everything. Money is important and we should have a good grasp over it because our material life has an effect on our spiritual life. And most of the time, you know, we ignore that or we don't realize that our spiritual life and economic life has to somehow connect and there has to be a connection. So I've been trying and my compilation was the first step to make it easy for people to find the writings. But I wasn't satisfied. I really believe that we have to do something. So when I wrote the book, I really made it and I called it a manual. I put all the writings, again, my compilation is there. The workshop I'd made when I was in China, we were pioneers in China for two years. And I was asked to put something because uh, there was a great demand in China for economics, unlike in North America and some other part of the world. Uh, China was so receptive. They all question was about economics. And I was very encouraged by the message of House of Justice in 2012, saying that our economic life and our spiritual life should not be different. So that really encouraged me to say what I had to say, that we have to start gradually introducing those spiritual principles in our daily life. It has to reflect in our life. I was really, really, and I still believe, if it doesn't reflect in our life, there's something missing. If I'm a spiritual person, I believe I'm of this religion or this ideology, but it doesn't show in my action, then it's all words. So if we say, you know, I'm a spiritual person, then we have to care for the poor people. We have to be honest. And this is, to me, automatic. So I said the economics of the future begins today because I really believe that we have to do something. So anyway, when House of Justice, they send a message, I was panicking because I said, oh, my God, I now have written this book and I made a statement that the time has come <laughs> to introduce this principle in our life. What if in their wisdom they say that, no, it's not the time. And So anyway, I was so relieved that, Whatever I said in black and white, I didn't have to recant or find a hole and hide for eternity for making a big mistake. And I was actually excited. I don't think I could sleep for three days and nights. So excited to read the message 
feeling that really in their wisdom they decided that mankind, this is not a message for Baha'is, for the whole world, that mankind has reached such a maturity that the time has come for them to start this process of building a foundation for the world commonwealth. Actually, I sent some of the materials I've made. One of them is called Practical Suggestion for Everyday Use. I feel we are in such an exciting time we are living. And I never could say it in words till I read Alvin Taffler, the visionary that I really like. He said, we are the final generation of the old civilization and the first generation of the new one. Our generation is so lucky. We are the one, we see the old order crumbling. We see the old things not working, whether they are educational, whether they're economical, whether they're political. At the same time, we see glimpses of future in here and there. We see how billionaires, they decide to give the billions. People who were so much intoxicated in materialism and they wanted to get it with hook and crook. And now they are just finding the only way they enjoy it is to give it away. To me, that's the signs of humanity going to a different stage and reaching a certain level of maturity, spiritually, I mean. I think the time has come. You said this book is a manual. So could you lay out for us how the book is organized? My intention was it has to be absolutely in simple language. It really bothers me when I read book with people use big words. My example was Abdu'l-Bahá when he talks about... Abdu'l-Bahá being the son of Baha'u'lláh. He always talked in different churches for people, and the way he put the things was so simple. Anybody, whether you're a scientist or ordinary person, that was very inspiring for me, and I really believe that if we have something to say, it should be understood by everyone, not just for the elite or the educated people. This is everyone, the society has done this. So I made sure that this book is first simple. I started with the historic from the day one. The one hunter was bored and exchanges food, and that was the beginning of economics. The barter economy started. And then, you know, the standing gym coming, and then things got complicated and stuff. So coming to the history of economics and mentioning that economic got it wrong because they thought by giving man more material goods without doing him a great service. So they work on one aspect of man and they just say, well, to have more production, more consumption, this is good for you. But reality is that they got it wrong. And there were some of the economists that they said, no, we think that there should be a reference to the moral part of human being, things like love, family, you know, environment, all this stuff, why those things are not discussed. And they were to me, and they just gave the warning that this system can lead to a very disastrous situation, which we are. We, in 2008, we almost got bankrupt. The whole world economic system almost crumbled. Why? Because of the greed. So the first is the history of economics in a simple language, where we have been, where we have come. Then, in a kind of a timeline, some of the economists who did contribute to the economic theories. So you get an idea of where it started and also understand the characters in the economic system. So you have a basic idea of the history and people contributed. The next chapter was basically dealing with what Baha'is have to offer in this subject. So that's the chapter. Then the most important part of the book was the practical suggestion for every day. 
doing your income taxes to selling your car or selling something or having a factory. All those scenarios suggesting that, in my mind, this is what we should be doing. And then, of course, I put the compilation of economics so that people, they want to know about the writing, they're all there. And then also I put kind of a mini dictionary, the meaning of about 200 economic terms that in case people, they don't have time to go to dictionary when they want to understand economics. And also, again, made them in a very simple language. So when you read this terminology, it's simple so you understand. And then, of course, I added a workshop material that I had put together when I was in China to get through some of the writings, whether for groups or individuals. So in one way, in my mind, I covered from history to terminology to suggestions to the pure writings and to workshops. So in that way, I thought, like a manual for your TV or a car, <laughs> you should provide all the scenarios that people may need. So that's why I call it a manual. Do you have an excerpt that you can read from the book? And the back cover says the gist of what I really wanted to say, and I read it for you. The present economic system is sick and dying. It cannot meet the needs of humanity. The gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider, which has increased the sufferings of masses. The solution that can heal it have been ignored. It is time to re-examine the fundamental assumptions that this system was built on and replace them with humane, moral, and spiritual ones. A shift in thinking is needed. We have the solution and the technology to build a new system. All we need is the resolve and the will. The time for action is upon us. This is our 11th hour. And I put a clock in the cover design showing 11th hour. So just to make the point <laughs> again that the time for action has come. And the action I mean is like any other process, start within. We start questioning in our soul and finding what we can do as individuals to contribute in the system. There are millions of people in misery and suffering with poverty. I feel we are all responsible in one way or the other. So if this misery is there, what can I do as an individual to help? And that's the process, I think, that the action that I believe, because we cannot change the world in a day. But every individual in their own little way, they can make a difference by being honest, just doing a transaction. A simple act of being honest, I think, is a good starting point. It reminds me, one of the basic principles of the Baha'i faith is termed as the spiritual solution of the economic problem. And it sounds like that's what you're describing, is that the ills of the economy, the root of it is spiritual and not mechanical. That's the problem we normally, with the economists and, and discussion, you know, the world is so much believing in facts and figures. Now you can tell anyone what happened in 2008, why the economic system crashed. This is the first time he can tell and say, well, some greedy people start selling mortgages. So the awareness of people realizing the gap between the rich is because the rich people, the 1%, famous now these days, everybody's aware of it. 
the 1% own the 99% of the resources. So the awareness has come and people are really realizing the root cause is not the system. Because if capitalism is no good, communism came to remedy that and make the working class the rulers and they fail because again, the selfishness, the human element and the rules. removal of the whole spiritual aspect of humanity in the exactly if you take the empathy out of the equation everybody for himself this whole philosophy of everybody for himself is clearly or the survival of the fittest in our north american mentality is a success but in reality it's the root cause of so many problems we have no empathy that what about others why the big fish has to eat the small fish. I mean, can they <laughs> they live together? I mean, why? Why do we do the things we do? The root cause of it is all those human, I call it the lower nature of man, that plays a role. As a humanity, we have to start working on that part. That's why I'm so proud of my wife wrote a book called Insistent Self, which is basically dealing with our ego. If we don't get a good hang over this problem, a whole history to tell us what, what this has done to humanity, whether in economic field or, you know, otherwise. The whole idea is that it's all good news. To me, the level of awareness in the world, and I see it every day, even if though I live in a small town in Vancouver Island, but I see even, and it's a logging town, by the way, this is not elite people with, you know, degrees and this and that. They're basically loggers. I see the awareness. The whole mankind to me is becoming aware and questioning. What are we doing? What have we done? And questioning the political system that has been established for so long. Say, well, this is not working. I was in education. We, me and my wife, we retired from high school and when I started working, I told one of the teachers, our education system is dead, has no life. And he was mad at me. He says, what are you doing? You're too new. You don't know what you're talking about. And by the time I was retiring, he came to me and then said, yeah, you were right. And he realized, people, they're realizing that the systems that we established, you know, by, uh, you know, 100 years ago or so, they're not really satisfying our needs. And our demands, our awareness is increasing to me. Our soul is sending the message, I need more. I'm not just happy with making money and having money. There's something in my soul that is not satisfied, and I want that. And that curiosity or that not being satisfied is leading to so many questioning and awareness that's happening. I'm so excited. People are questioning and people are looking for different ways of doing it problem is that people don't know they have a problem. Any common man can say that, yeah, things are not working. They admit there's a problem. So 50% of the problem is solved. Now finding which one, which way to go. So of course, there are so many experimentation. People are looking at this solution, that solution. They go places that, you know, no man has gone before. But that's really wonderful because that's part of the process of investigation for truth, and which is one of the fundamental principles we have in the Baha'i faith. So I'm really excited that the whole mankind is becoming so aware of the issues that's surrounding them and realizing that they need to take care of their own soul too, as much as they take care of their body. Now, Badi, 
how did you use your Baha'i perspective as an educator? How did you inject your Baha'i perspective into education or being a teacher? Well, I'm very lucky, Warren. I really am lucky. You know, I grew up in Iran with difficulties and there were problems, prejudices, fights, tried to kill me, you know, they tried to kill the whole family. Then I went to India and I experienced being a refugee in a poor country, then coming to Canada. You know, life has taught me so much that whether I like it or not, it just comes. So when I started my work in the school, I just realized it's all about relationship. And actually, funny enough, in the high school later on, the principal adopted what I was saying all the time in a staff meeting and I'll say it's all about relationship. I believe that you have a relationship and people trust you, then you can make a difference. If they don't, doesn't matter what theory of psychology or education you use. It's not going to work because the kid says, I don't like you, I don't trust you as a teacher or as an educator. I was very lucky. I was myself struggling with education and was not an A student when I was in school, so I could easily relate. I was ADHD, and so I knew one of the kids when they were sent to my office, I knew what was happening to them. So my life experience really helped me to understand, and I enjoyed it. So, Badi, thank you so much for sharing your life and your work with us. Thank you, Warren. I really appreciate it. Some days after our interview, Badi said he regretted not making one last point. I told him I'd convey his message. It's as follows. He said, Today, more than any time before, we have to be aware of the world around us and observe its effects on us. Changes are happening fast, and sometimes we think we are losing the control of our lives. So it means we have to be more vigilant and be more on our guard. Every day, the spiritual struggle between the constructive and destructive forces is happening, and this is visible in our economic life. Increasing our knowledge about our material side or economic side is essential for our spiritual health and growth. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Badi Shams, author of the book, Economics of the Future Begins Today. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
trudged up the mountain. She had a long, hard climb. She didn't stop to rest herself. She didn't take her time. She wrapped her cloak of sorrow long and black around her tight.
The photograph I see Comes alive so easily And tells me of a life That was so pure He would never turn Away from anyone And the love in his eyes Is so real He suffered all his life to show us how to be free. He could always love his enemy. And through the worst of trials, he could always smile and lift the heart of every friend up so high.
Oh, oh. 
Lord exhilarate the spirits through the signs of sanctity. Make these faces radiant through thy love, through thy love, oh. Through thy love, through thy love, oh. If we bind together all the hearts and join in a chord of souls.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.